Welcome to Paved Paradise, a podcast about housing in Los Angeles, told from the perspective of residents, activists, artists, and city officials. I'm your host, Sue Belnick. Our last episode examined the racism baked into our housing policies and economic system. Now, we turn to the people who wanted to overthrow that system altogether. The anarchist and socialist revolution that was brewing in downtown Los Angeles in the early part of the 20th century is not a well-known history, but it shines a light on the radical imaginings of a different kind of system for the working, immigrant, and oppressed poor. These ideas still froth and foam just beneath the surface. So I have a habit of going into any place along here that looks as though it might be old <laughs> and having a good nose around the interior fittings and seeing you know, what will transport me back to the past. That's Janet Owen Driggs. She's a writer, artist, curator, and professor at Cypress College. It's a bit difficult when there's only one of you. <laughs> it makes it a little harder to perform, actually. Yeah, yeah. I like an audience. For the past several years, she has been researching the red history of downtown Los Angeles in the early 1900s. And by red, I mean communist, socialist, overthrow of capitalism style revolution. And I am talking about class war. <laughs> Today is a bit unconventional. We will be going on a tour of downtown Los Angeles as it was back in the early 1900s when this class warfare was unfolding. Janet is our guide and we are accompanied by her partner and collaborator, Matt Owen Driggs, and Theo, their 10-year-old son. I've posted pictures from each stop on the website, pavedparadisepodcast.com. This historical battle for the future of Los Angeles, between socialists devoted to revolution and the well-heeled white wasps from the Midwest, determined the shape of the city today. You can probably guess who won. But... That underlying revolutionary foment is still there. Maybe it will arise once again, especially when the rents get too high. We start at the Gold Line Metro stop in Chinatown in a small plaza under the raised train platform. I'd like you to conjure an image of what this area might have been like over a century ago. Los Angeles, 1900 was a place of incredible diversity and tension. We had in the beginning of the 20th century this comment from the LA Times, 1912-1913. LA Times said, Los Angeles is overflowing with, quote, frothing reds and foaming riot, which threatens everything that is right and good in human life. The LA Times traditionally, historically, has always taken a pretty right-wing stance politically in the, the neighborhood. And this was perhaps never as obvious as in the early 20th century when there was a big clash between what we could call the white forces and the red forces. This is whiteness in opposition to redness, a whiteness that the LA Times owners conceived of in relation to the white spot. LA was the white spot. They did mean that racially, but they didn't want a city bleached of all people of color. What they wanted was a city in which people of color, working class people, 
were disciplined to the aims and goals of capitalism. So the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant capitalist aim of maximum profit for a few members of society, i.e. the people who owned the Los Angeles Times. By 1910, it seemed that Los Angeles was well on its way to becoming the white spot. 76% of the population here were white and US born. Um, this was more than any other US city at the time. However, by 1911, Josh Harriman came very, very close to being elected as socialist mayor of Los Angeles. So that should give you some sense of the tensions. Now, why was LA so much a white spot in 1910? Well, it has to do with immigration and the nature of the immigration to this area. So let's go upstairs onto the Metro platform and I'm gonna show you the Ellis Island of Los Angeles. We get in the elevator and make our way up to the raised platform. Looking off the back of the platform, we survey a vast open space, the LA State Historic Park. On our right is a giant empty parking lot and surrounding industrial spaces. On the other side are newly constructed luxury apartment buildings, a colorful mix of boxy complexes called Blossom Plaza. Behind us, the jumble of Chinatown. We are looking out over the cornfield. It's now the Los Angeles State Historic Park, and it was the site of the first railroad to connect Los Angeles to the rest of the country. The LA State Historic Park, which was once a railway depot, was designated as parkland in 2001 after a hard-fought campaign by surrounding community groups and after the discovery of a segment of the Zanja Madre, an aqueduct built by Spanish colonizers in 1781 using the labor of Tongva Native Americans. Deemed to be an important site for LA history, it was landscaped and open to the public in 2017. Janet refers to it as the cornfield, which was an old name for the land. The story goes that corn would fall out of the trains and sprout along the tracks. In 2005, the artist Lauren Bond planted an actual cornfield on the site, partially as a way to rehabilitate the toxic soil and prepare it for the park to come. It opened in 1876 and it's called Los Angeles Ellis Island. Even though it was actually only 12 years that there were passengers coming to this area, after 12 years, there was so much demand for passenger travel and freight travel that the railway station was moved and the cornfield became used only for freight. But in that 12 years, we saw the first wave of people coming into Los Angeles, coming west. That first wave were almost all prosperous white Midwesterners. Unlike most other cities, these were not poorer immigrants. Now, the population exploded with the coming of the railway. In 1870, it was around 6,000. 1890, it was over 50,000. 
Round about 1900, things start to change. There's more than one railway company serving Los Angeles, and they engage in price wars. And there are periods in which it costs a dollar to come from Chicago or from New York. And working people, just like the the wealthy Midwesterners, similarly see the West as a place where there is greater freedom, where their dreams will be realized. And you have, in conjunction with that, the marketing of Los Angeles and the American West as a new Eden. This is the place to go to create your life. So you have, with a $1 ticket, working people coming from Chicago to Los Angeles, coming from New York to Los Angeles, and bringing with them their values and ideas and ideals and dreams. And they don't necessarily coincide with those of the WASPs and the Los Angeles Times. So you have an increasing foment building. Whose interests is this city going to work for? You have the Mexican Revolution beginning in 1910, and you have a lot of people coming from south to north moving away from the revolution. They've been moving before that, uh, responding to, to shifts and oppressions in Mexican society that was pushing the agricultural laborers off the land, really privatizing the land there. So they came seeking work and a better life. You also had revolutionaries arriving from Mexico, the Flores Magons, for example, who came here. Ricardo, Enrique, and Jesus Flores Magón were Mexican anarchists and social reformists who were important figures in the movement that sparked the Mexican Revolution of 1910. Ricardo Flores Magón and his brothers wrote newspaper articles in opposition to the Mexican government and founded their own paper called El Regeneración. Their followers were called the Maganistas. When the government banned his writings and he was pursued as a dissident, he fled to California in 1906 with much of his family and became head of the opposition party, the Partido Liberal Mexicano, or the PLM. The Maganistas were a major force in the Mexican Civil War that followed, and they fought for workers' rights, land reform, and against the influence of foreign capital brought in by dictator Profirio Diaz. They were not the only anarchists, labor activists, and socialists in Los Angeles. You had figures like Emma Goldman, Upton Sinclair, and Job Harriman, the leader of the Socialist Party in Los Angeles. This was a place where politically you have a very high degree of discourse and activism occurring on the left. Anarchists, socialists, the labor movement working together sometimes against each other, but certainly working against the interests of the LA Times and its white spot. This is the site where much of that foment swirled around. I'm going to take you from the Chinatown station. We're going to walk through what was Sonora Town, named thus because many of the residents here originally came from Sonora in Mexico. So Los Angeles by the 1890s had become a very active participant in the North American national economy. 
just to give you a sense of how that was economically, by 1890, 9% of the US population owned 71% of personally held wealth. 2014, just as a comparison, 1% of the US population owned 40% of the wealth. So there's a real parallel between what was happening a century ago and what's happening today. And this imbalance um, of access to, to the wealth of the era is the status quo that the, the foaming reds wanted to shift. And of course, the, you know, the advocates of the white spot wish to maintain. About 18 months ago, a studio that was under 500 square feet rented in this building for $1,710 a month. We have one-bedroom apartments going here for between $2,190 and $2,500 a month. And just to compare that to the median income of people who live in Chinatown now, that is $22,754. The neighborhood here is 97.5% people of color. 91% renters, and that median income, I'm going to repeat it again because it's extraordinary, is $22,754. That is what it would cost to pay the rent on a studio under 500 square feet for a year. So if we're talking about class war, I think we see it manifest absolutely here. Janet is talking about Blossom Plaza, the boxy, contemporary-looking luxury apartments and towers just next to the metro stop. According to their website, a 407-square-foot studio is $2,329 a month, far higher than Janet's numbers from just a year before. A two-bedroom apartment goes for over $3,000. If you click on Neighborhood on the website, the banner reads, Conquer It!, in bold, italicized font. It reads, quote, You're choosing to live in one of downtown LA's most vibrant neighborhoods. Within steps of your home at Blossom Plaza, you can discover new places to eat, grab a drink with friends, hop onto the metro, take a run in Los Angeles State Historic Park. Make things happen. On the other side of the metro stop is a vast, empty parking lot, which, according to some new development plans, will soon look just like Blossom Plaza. There's currently all along Broadway plans for seven and eight story multi-use buildings and it'll be the same iteration of very expensive apartments which will stay empty as so many of these are until as the owners are gambling the population in the neighborhood changes. Apparently that's what they do. Property developers calculate in keeping buildings empty for maybe 10 years. And it's worth it because of the ultimate profit that they will make. They just, they have to have the right population in the neighborhood and they can anchor the gentrification shift through their building. We headed back down from the metro platform to ground level and began to walk south on Spring Street stopping in front of a large industrial-looking building that has been converted to creative office space. Now talk about class war. We have a little bit of physical evidence left of another industrial building. This was once owned by the Times Mirror Publishing Company, and it was their Crown Columbia Paper Company storeroom. So they'd keep all their rolls of paper for printing here. 
in early October 1912 and, nine, and early October 1913, this building experienced what I'm interpreting to be arson attacks. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because on October the 1st, 1911, there was an, a bomb exploded at the Los Angeles Times and 20 people died. And it was very much part of this frothing, reds, foaming riot context. It was in the run-up to what looked like would inevitably occur in terms of the election of Joe Harriman, a socialist candidate to be mayor of Los Angeles. Probably the single thing that prevented that happening uh, was the events surrounding the LA Times bombing and the subsequent trial that occurred. Now, we don't know for sure, but could it be that this was a memorial attack? Possibly. Um, it's exactly a year later and then exactly two years later. Neither of them were very large fires. The 1913 fire caused $500 worth of damage. But anyway, here you see the, the brick remains of an industrial hulk that has been reprocessed into creative industry workspace. We turn to the other side of Spring Street, which is currently a parking lot for large trucks. Back in the early 1900s, North Spring Street was called San Fernando Street and was part of Sonora Town. San Fernando Street was really the deep red center of the leftist movement in Los Angeles opposite what was the river station of the Southern Pacific Railroad, lived a woman for a while called Blanca de Monceliano. And she lived with her husband, Juan de Monceliano. Juan had just been expelled from Mexico for setting up um, an international home, the home of the workers of the world. He was um, at the heart of the Mexican labor movement. Home of the workers of the world was a headquarters for anarchists. So you can see, you know, he was definitely one of the frothing reds. And we can read quite a bit about Juan de Monceliano. The person we don't read so much about is his wife, Blanca, who was a wife and mother, ran a home, etc. She was also the writer, editor and publisher of a publication called La Pluma Roja, or The Red Pen. And her motto, educate women and the triumph of anarchy will be at hand. She absolutely put women at the forefront of the left struggle. And like many people engaging in this kind of political activism at the time, she suffered from uh, the animosity of the state and the local dignitaries, the local council members, the local police. The boundaries of what was once called Sonora Town extend from the LA State Historic Park through to Union Station, crossing through what is currently Chinatown and Olvera Plaza. Sonora Town suggests it was a, a Mexican population. Well, it was much, much, much more diverse than that. You had Mexican, Italian, Chinese, Irish, Japanese, Anglo, Colombian. The de Monceliano's were originally from Colombia. Um, and the thing that kept that, that people had in common was their low income. <laughs> people would come 
from the train station, they would land either at this station or at the, the later passenger train station, which is located roughly where Skid Row is now. And they would look for their people. They'd look for somewhere very cheap to stay. They'd look for their relatives. Many people would live together. And it was a, a rite of passage for newcomers and particularly immigrants for whom English wasn't their first language coming to the neighborhood. They would learn English living with relatives and friends um, and they would find their first job and then they would start to establish themselves. But they lived very close to the place they arrived because they couldn't walk that far. You know, they didn't have money for transportation and they didn't have friends with carriages to pick them up. Right now, Spring Street is a mix of creative office spaces, cafes, and buildings that appear to be shuttered and awaiting development. It is clearly a neighborhood in the midst of rapid gentrification. You can still see hints of what it must have been like back in the early 1900s, when it was San Fernando Street. Two- and three-story buildings with shops on the ground floor and apartments on top, cafes and bars and cheap rooms for rent. Apparently, there are plenty of reports of public drunkenness and bar fights in this neighborhood. It was a bit rough and tumble. Okay, so here we are. You can see we're at 759 San Fernando Street, roughly next door to the current building. You had La Escuela Racionalista. This was established um, along lines advocated by Francisco Ferrer. Ferrer was a Spanish anarchist and he um, was a pedagogue. He was a founder of the modern school system, teaching radical social values, performing those values in peer-to-peer education. It's very, very different, La Escuela Racionalista, from any other enterprise that at that time was going on in Los Angeles, enterprises uh, in favor of working class education run by the church or charitable institutions where they were teaching English to immigrants and teaching WASP values. Um, La Escuela Racionalista was absolutely an anarchist organization. And the Monsellanos were probably the people who set this up, given their history in Mexico City, in Colombia, bringing the workers' house methods from Mexico here. La Escuela Racionalista was an anarchist school based off of the Escuela Moderna pedagogy of Spanish Catalonian revolutionary Francisco Ferrer Guardia. From the text Origins and Ideals of the Modern School by Ferrer, He describes a school that is, quote, explicitly taught children that militarism is a crime, that the unequal distribution of wealth was a thing to be abhorred, and the capitalist system was bad for the workers, and that political government is an evil, end quote. I think hearing directly from Ferrer about the pedagogy of anarchists at the time is a great window into the political ideologies of the people who set up this school and spread these ideas in downtown Los Angeles. Ferrer writes, quote, If matter is one, uncreated, and eternal, if we live on a relatively small body in space, a mere speck in comparison with the innumerable globes around us, as is taught in the universities and may be learned by the privileged few who share the monopoly of science, we have no right to teach, and no excuse for teaching, in the primary schools to which the people go when they have opportunity, 
that God made the world out of nothing in six days and all the other absurdities of the ancient legends. Truth is universal and we owe it to everybody. To put a price on it, to make the monopoly of a privileged few, to detain the lowly in systemic ignorance, and what is worse, impose on them a dogmatic and official doctrine in contradiction with the teaching of science, in order that they may accept with docility their low and deplorable condition, is to me an intolerable indignity. For my part, I consider that the most effective protest and the most promising form of revolutionary action consist in giving the oppressed, the disinherited, and all who are conscious of a demand for justice as much truth as they can receive, trusting that it will direct their energies in the great work of the regeneration of society." It's no wonder that this was not overly popular amongst those in power at the time, and Ferrer was executed in 1909 by his own government. The Escuela moved to 809 Yale Street in February 1913 in imitation of the International Workers' Home in Mexico. They set one up here. It was the, the PLM, the um, Magonistas group, set it up, and it was intended to be a model, a beacon, a place for creating the society that people wanted to see. You could live there, you could stay there, you could be educated there, you discuss politics there, eat there, perform there, be entertained there. It was a home. LA Times called it the rebel headquarters for Los Angeles and uh, <laughs> said it was bristling with guns. It was an arsenal for the rebels. It was a school, it was a home. But it didn't last because of internal divisions within the PLM. The Magons at this time were in jail and their colleagues, comrades here in Los Angeles took a different direction than they were happy with. And the whole thing imploded. It led to huge eruptions within the family of Enrico, Enrique Magon, whose partner Paula was the daughter of one of the leading figures in the kind of schism that occurred with the workers, the workers' home, sadly. But we're going to learn more about Paula and her father at one of our next stops. Besides the barrage of negative articles from the LA Times lambasting the frothing reds of downtown, those in power in LA who wanted to truly turn the city into a white spot had other weapons at their disposal. One of these was land use, and during this time the city engaged in a systematic effort to use public health concerns to clear out large swaths of land that were occupied by immigrants, people of color, and laborers. Prostitution and the spread of disease were examples of these scapegoats that gave the wealthy white power brokers free reign to get rid of unsavory elements. There's a couple of pushes forward in the 1920s to consolidate those illegal activities in Chinatown, uh, which was then over by... Union Station. And it was partly a way of kind of demonizing those that were different by saying, you know, go to Chinatown and it's a place of drugs and sex and gambling and all the bad sinful things happen there. You also had 
couple of things happened that facilitated the kind of the cleansing of those areas, if you like. So the building of Union Station was one of those. It swept away Chinatown, the old Chinatown. And the other thing was a, an incidence of plague. It was both bubonic and pneumonic plague in the early 1920s. And it was absolutely kind of conceptualized publicly as associated with people of color, Mexican immigrants. So that was another excuse to clear vast swathes of residential area and mixed-use commercial lodging, bar, etc., and get rid of it. I imagine that there was legislation, I don't know for sure, that criminalized prostitution in these cribs that thrived here. But those two land clearances, we're really, we're talking about land use that sort of war against something that, or everything that is seen to be counter to the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant interests is shifted away. So we're standing opposite a hole in the ground where once would have been 720 San Fernando Street. San Fernando Street's residents show us that not all Mexicans were great supporters of the frothing reds and the foaming riot. Um, for example, we had living here, somebody and I quote the LA Times, a cowboy and ex-secret service agent. And they meant cowboy literally, not in the, in the sense of a cowboy builder. Um, his name is Pete Martin or Pedro Martinez. He uses both. And the LA Times calls him Pete Martin when they are seeing him as being on the good side. And they call him Pedro Martinez when he's on the bad side. On the good side, Pete Martin was a key witness in 1912 in a trial against Ricardo Flores Magon and the PLM leaders for breaking neutrality laws. Now, the PLM had planned and organized a takeover of Tijuana and Mexicali that lasted for six months. This is during the Mexican Revolution. They were based in Los Angeles by that time. They moved here in 1906. And they had been gathering money, supporters, arms that they would have taken down to Mexico to fuel the anarchist side, the PLM side in the Mexican Revolution. Their uprising in Mexicali was put down by, by Madero. And Flores Magón, Ricardo Flores Magón and other PLM leaders ended up in jail, put there partly by Pete Martin. Martin gained some real notoriety. The LA Times loved him because after he gave his damning testimony, a very young woman, um, I think she was 17 at the time, her name's Lucille Norman, and she's Ricardo Flores Magon's, not his daughter genetically, but his daughter in every other way, attacks Pete Martin slash Pedro Martinez in the courthouse. And it's kind of a cause celebre in the LA Times. You know, they have all these pictures of this young woman in a rather wonderful picture hat. She's just attacked the, uh, quote, cowboy ex-secret service agent who is shopping her father. Along with Lucille Norman was a 15-year-old girl called Mercedes Figueroa. She was the daughter of another PLM leader. So there was this basically a fisticuffs in the courthouse. P. Martin was the hero. 
but let me direct your attention to the other side of the street. 715 San Fernando Road lives Manuel Carmona. He's another patriot, like Pete Martin. Now, Pedro Martinez, and in reporting this story, the LA Times calls him Pedro Martinez. Pedro Martinez was obsessed with Carmona's married daughter, whose name is Maria Sibas. Martin wants Maria to elope with him. She refuses. He keeps on pressuring her. She keeps refusing. Finally, she gives him her absolute final refusal, says no, and he's like, okay, have a breath mint. She took it. It was mercury. Um, That happened on August the 12th, 1912. So this is all within a brief period of time. By August the 14th, Maria is very, very uh, unwell, and she gives what's known as an anti-mortem statement, the statement before she dies. And August the 15th, the doctor in the case, quote, gives up all hope. Now, I have never been able to discover whether Maria Sebas ultimately died or if she recovered. But I have been able to discover that a few short months later, in January 1913, Pete Martin slash Pedro Martinez was in jail for attempted murder. But it wasn't the murder of Maria Sebas. It was the murder of his mother-in-law. What a character. I am fascinated by the story of Pete Martin, a.k.a. Pedro Martinez. Besides feeling a little like a juicy spy novel, it also underscores the whitewashing at play in this city and the politics of race. We walk a little further up the street, and here the signs of inevitable gentrification are vivid. Rows of little two-story historic buildings all shuttered, awaiting redevelopment. Some of the little shops and corner stores they once held, which appeared to cater to a more working-class population, seem very recently closed. So we're looking at a little stretch of houses, um, 652 to 660 San Fernando, that was owned by Romulo Carmona. So a different Carmona. Romulo was the father of Enrique Flores Magon's partner, Paula. Paula and Enrique probably met in Texas, um, where the Flores Magons had fled uh, in 1903. The Flores Magons had to escape from Mexico in 1906, and they came here. They were on the run. And Paula's father, Romulo, hid them out here. They were on the run because in 1905... Uh, They'd founded the PLM and called for armed uprising against Diaz, the president of Mexico, and the armed uprising failed. They were living at number 652. Next door at 654, Carmona ran La Aurora, which was an anarchist bookstore. Now, Carmona, who owned these buildings, who's effectively... Enrique's father-in-law, though they don't marry, they're anarchists. Um, He and the PLM split. Carmona and the Monsellianos fell onto one side of the argument and the Flores Magons onto the other. 1913. And the schism was so 
great that Enrique and Paula split. Enrique never saw his two children with Paula again. It was a very dramatic ideological split and rebounded onto personal fractures as well. We turn our attention across a loud, bustling intersection at the edge of what is now Olvera Street, at an old historic building called Italian Hall. It is several stories, large and brick, with revival cornices and the old signage still intact. So we're looking here at Italian Hall, 53 to 55 Olvera Street. It was built in 1908 as a gathering place for the Italian-American community. It was the site of weddings, fraternal society dinners, foot races, political discussions and dances. And it wasn't used only by the Italians, it was also used by the Mexican community. And it became a hub for radical ideas. 1913, for example, there was a fundraiser held at Italian Hall for victims of the Mexican Revolution. In 1915, you have a dance titled Lucy Vida. Um, it's a fundraiser for Regeneración, which is the publication of the PLM, which is published, produced and printed in Los Angeles. Um, and Lucy Vida was organized by an all-female branch of the PLM, which was founded in 1915 to raise funds. And they were very, very politically active in the PLM in this neighborhood, speaking in the plaza most weekends, selling regeneration, leafleting, spreading the word. 1916, Emma Goldman spoke at Italian Hall, and she speaks in defense of Ricardo Flores Magon to raise funds for his bail. He was in prison again. Uh, 1917, Ricardo Flores Magon himself spoke in that building to over 700 people, members of the International Workers' Defense League. Italian Hall is just next to the birthplace of Los Angeles, the site of the original Pueblo all centered around a Mexican plaza. Because, of course, this was all once Mexican-owned land. After the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the Spanish-owned, then Mexican-owned territory of Los Angeles becomes owned by the United States. So until that point, you had had a Spanish-slash-Mexican area with Spanish Mexican values, conventions, modes of social organization, interaction. And the plaza was a very, very important space. Life was conducted in public, and the plaza was a central point of that. What you have happening after the Treaty of Hidalgo Rivera, and it takes a few decades to really ramp up, but what you have is an influx of the Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, affluent, classes and, and also the kind of the chancellor classes coming west to take over what had been Mexican-owned land. And over time, land moves out of Mexican hands and into Anglo hands. One of those Anglo hands were the manicured fingers of wealthy socialite Christine Sterling, who took it upon herself to both sanitize and domesticate this historic center for Mexican life, for white pleasure and white consumption. 
She had an idealized, romantic vision of the happy Mexico of the past. A colorful place where everyone was happy and worked tirelessly for years to make that happen. She enticed Mexican entrepreneurs to open businesses on the street and molded the decor to conform to her fantasy vision of a Mexican marketplace. As part of this, Plaza Art Center director F.K. Ferenz commissioned the artist Alfaro Siqueiros to paint America Tropical, a massively controversial mural about American imperialism. According to the Interpretive Center, quote, the central visual and symbolic focus of the piece is an Indian peon representing oppression by U.S. imperialism is crucified on a double cross capped by an American eagle. A Mayan pyramid in the background is overrun by vegetation, while an armed Peruvian peasant and a Mexican campesino or farmer sit on a wall in the upper right corner ready to defend themselves. This didn't sit so well with the establishment politics at the time, and especially not with Christine Sterling. Ferenz was a huge supporter of the arts, but you don't commission a Stalinist who participated in an attempt on Trotsky's life and was in favor of the Soviet Union to paint a picture of a docile and tranquil Mexican village and not expect consequences. Within six months, the mural was painted over and was largely forgotten until recently. It is still undergoing conservation and restoration. We make our way toward Olvera Plaza, just past the site of America Tropical, and the delicious smells of food begin to waft toward us. Vendors, old historic buildings, and a quintessentially European bandstand come into view as we enter the cobblestone square. Beginning of the 20th century, this is still, however, a center for public discourse, much as the LA Times and their ilk are attempting to shut that public discourse down. Otis and the LA Times push for a ban on public oratory everywhere in the city of Los Angeles except in the plaza. And in 1909, the plaza becomes a free speech zone. And we know what happens when free speech zones are established. Everywhere else becomes a restricted speech zone. 1914, public pressure forces the city to install a speaker's rostrum in the plaza. And you have many, many people come speak here. Goldman, for example, again, Emma Goldman, Upton Sinclair, both of the Magons, Lucille Norman, Maria Talavera, all the PLM people, they were all active here. A little further ahead of where I'm particularly focused, but in the 1920s and 30s, you had Communist Party rallies, Socialist Party rallies, with well over 10,000 people attending. Of course, the white forces, the forces of the white froth and foam, fought back. Um, let's walk to Sanchez Street, because something rather terrible happened there on Christmas Day in 1913. Sanchez Street isn't even named, it has no street name, which is how much it has fallen out of its street status. But somewhere here, Christmas Day 1913, 
there's a rally of around 1,500 people. And it's a rally against unemployment. And the practice that was um, rife at the time of the owners of uh, industries and businesses inviting new laborers to the city with the promise of work. There was already high unemployment. There were already low wages. But if you have a big pool of the unemployed, you can push the wages down even further. So 1913, now, you've got workers rallying against that practice. Now, there are a lot of speakers. The English editor of Regeneration, which was a dual language paper, and he was, his name was Owen, um, he spoke. And to no great event, the police stood there and watched. Um, but then the Mexican leader of the international workers of the world, the Wobblies, uh, whose name was Ojeda, spoke. Then the police attacked. The crowd throws rocks at the police. The fight moves from the central fountain to the top of Sanchez Street, which is where we're standing now. And a young man called Rafael Adames is shot by Officer Cunningham. Cunningham claims that Adames had, and I quote, a vicious-looking 38 that he was pointing at the officer, but no gun was ever found. It's a familiar story. Adames was taken to um, an IWW hall at 2nd and Los Angeles Street. So he was obviously picked up and raced there, which is where he died. There was rioting in this area until about 7.30 p.m. the following that night, and then the following day, December 26, martial law was declared. The LAPD arrested 73 people. Ten people were convicted. Um, of various crimes. And as a result of this, there's a city ordinance that bans public speaking without a permit anywhere in the city of Los Angeles except in the plaza. And there's also a ban on tamale wagons in and around the plaza. So that happened here. And there's no marker, of course, to recognize that Rafael Adames was shot dead here. Our last stop is just on the other side of the plaza, looking down a grass and tree-covered hill where we can view Union Station and a nearby apartment complex. Where Union Station is now, the old Chinatown thrived from around 1890 to 1910. There was a Chinese opera theater, three temples, a newspaper, 15 streets. It was a very lively, active environment. Also in this neighborhood, you had a lot of political activists. In 1908, we have a record of the Chi Kung Tong raising money for anti-Manchu revolutionaries and Sun Yat-sen. Their address at 315 and a half Apple Blasser Street was a secret meeting place for the anti-Manchus. The Manchus were the emperors at that time. And you had this fomenting of opposition to the imperial power in China. Sun Yat-sen was uh, one of the primary leaders of that. And he came to Los Angeles on fundraising trips. In addition to fundraising, you also had people trained as soldiers here. 
at 416 March Assault Street, which no longer exists, it's under Union Station, you had what was called the Western Military Academy. Now, it had been an empty lot for a while where local kids had played baseball. Um, now it was being used by Sun Yat-sen's American advisor, whose name was Homer Lee, to train Chinese recruits from this neighborhood in military warfare to then go to China and engage in war. Now, the LA Times, which was so ferociously anti the Mexican revolutionaries, they didn't exactly celebrate the Chinese rev revolutionaries, but they saw them as a curiosity and they reported on the, tra the military academy, the training grounds, drilling, marching, etc. They participated in the Rose Parade in 1905. Uh, in 1912, Sun Yat-sen formed the Kuomintang government. They overthrew the emperor. So they were ultimately participating in a successful revolution and the streets are now buried under Union Station. People of colour, working class people, moved out of an area in order to build infrastructure that services the desires, the profit desires of a white wasp, largely wasp still. So in a way, we come back to where we started, to the class war being waged today on the working class of this city. I asked Janet for her reflections, and she started by saying that the term class war seems like one from a different era, an era where anarchists spoke at large public rallies and a socialist almost became mayor of Los Angeles. But working class people and people of color are systematically being forced to dismantle their communities and their homes to service the profit desires of developers. These people are already billionaires, and if you don't think this is class war, you're wrong. A century ago, we had a concerted effort to create a different structure, a different set of circumstances, one in which land was controlled by communities, workers were protected, and the rights of everyday people would win the day. But that was shut down step by step, removing working class communities, physically aggressing against the people who were propagating these ideas. And that has led us to where we are today. I feel the dreams of a different future are perhaps coming to mind again. In the next episode, we will explore the manifestations of these dreams by investigating how artists shape the city through creative placemaking and a backlash to these efforts that come from an unlikely source. Many thanks to Janet and Matt Owen Driggs, who generously shared the results of years of research on the frothing reds of downtown LA in the early 1900s. And thank you to Theo, who gamely traipsed all through the city and provided color commentary throughout. I've posted photos from all the stops in our walking tour on our website, pavedparadisepodcast.com. Thanks, as always, to Mike Yank for composing the music for Paved Paradise. This is episode two of the six-episode series on housing in Los Angeles. And if you have a moment, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. It'll help other people find us. Thanks for listening and see you next time.